Hola, yo soy Margarita y estás escuchando Limehouse Podcast. This is Paddy Ashdown and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. What a good name that is. Hi, I'm Tom Brake and this is the Limehouse Podcast. Hello, this is Nick Clegg and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Because I'm not persuaded by the case for war. This is what positive politics can do. Welcome back to the Limehouse podcast, your liberal speakeasy. It's been another one of those weeks. Jeremy Corbyn has sacked people. It's been fantastic. Chukwu Amuna has been lambasted by Emily Thornberry. It's fantastic. The Tories are at war with themselves and it's because of Brexit. And what better place to come to talk about Brexit and everything within the sphere of the central political chasm than the Limehouse podcast. And I'm going to be chatting with Lynn Featherstone. She was a minister in the uh, coalition years and she did a lot of amazing work, as you will well know. She did a lot of work on FGM and she did a lot of work on uh, equal rights and, and gay marriage and and she brought that to pass really. So we, we touch on a lot of stuff we touch on. The uh, leadership, Tim Farron's leadership, Vince Cable's probable coronation. Um, and... It's a great chat. It's one that I was really looking forward to. So excited because obviously she, she a lot of water has passed under the bridge since she was in her position. I mean, two years. Who would have thought? It feels like a lifetime ago, the coalition. So I went to the House of Lords and let me tell you guys, that place is funny. It's, you know, what? I, I fought through the intimidation, but there was one part of the House of Lords where some of you might not be aware of this, but you're not allowed to talk as you go through this blue carpeted area. But the Lord or the lady that is with you is allowed to talk to you, but you're not allowed to reply back. And Lynn said that she didn't know why. I mean, it's extraordinary. But there you go. One of the many random facts of the House of Lords. She showed me into the debating chamber. I sat there for five minutes I was a bit overwhelmed, really, to be honest. The pomp and circumstance, the debate. Uh, they were talking about actually reforming uh, the prison system, justice system. So it was an amazing debate to walk in on, actually. But anyway, so you, enough of my rambling. Here's the conversation. I hope you've had a great week and I'll be back at the other end. Obviously, I want you to review us on iTunes. It always helps. It always goes down a long way. Goes down a long way. How, how do I say that? It always goes, yeah. Please review the show. It it goes a long way to helping the show, if if you know what I mean. And obviously we're on Facebook and we're also on Twitter, at LimehousePod. So, onwards and upwards. Okay, I'm here with Lynn and I, I'm hoping that this isn't too loud. It's all good. So, I guess a, a question that I, I suppose everyone would want to know, when did the fire start for you, politically? Like when Was it like when you were kicking a football around when you were like 10 years old or something? In a, no. No? Something no, happened? I'm a very accidental politician. Okay, yeah. Several things happen along the way. You know, you don't realise they're drivers at the time. I was always trying to help people. Yeah. I was a racist. Radio DJ in a hospital. No way. Voluntary, yeah. Well, it was in Stanmore, and I went with a friend. We just did one day at the weekend, and we would do Christmas from the wards. And 
you know, and then I did volunteering at the Royal Free Hospital, and I, when I was at school, I visited old people, whether they wanted to be visited or not. <laughs> and then, I guess, at college, I went to Oxford Polytechnic and studied design. I had my first campaign. They were trying to close my course, my design course, because they wanted to turn it into a university and be all degrees. Yeah. And I believed in polytechnics. I thought it was great to have builders' courses, catering courses, degree courses, yeah. you know, mini cosmos of life. I, I went to a polytechnic in Guildford. So there you yeah. go. Loved it. So I led a campaign to save art because I was on an art course. And we marched, and I did my first media, and of course produced loads of posters and pamphlets, and we won, and we stopped it, but three years later I left, and as people will know, Oxford Poly is now Oxford oh, really? University. Okay. Oh, but I got a taste for campaigning, and I looked at politics then. Yeah. Well, the Tories had a three-day week, I mean, it's a long time ago, the early 70s. They were rubbish. Labour came to power and they were rubbish. And the Liberals, as they were, were six rather strange men, <laughs> including Clement Freud and a leader who shot at people, okay. allegedly. Yeah. So I, I walked away for 20 years and I'm a designer by profession. Oh, fantastic. And then I just got mad at Margaret Thatcher. Well, I should add my street cred. When I was at college, I marched against Margaret Thatcher, threw flower bags at her effigy. Yeah. Wow. I know. Anyway, so 20 years later, I, I, I wasn't very political. I looked, I wanted to do something and was working as a volunteer at the Royal Free Hospital. Every piece of equipment was donated by a relative and, and the nurses were under pressure. And I remember thinking, God, you know, you really got to do something. And you could either own a multilateral, <laughs> so yeah. you're super rich, yeah. or get into the political process. And I looked at all the parties. I mean, I was never likely to be a conservative. I had a lot of sympathy with some of Labour's policies, but I, I, I couldn't bear that kind of command and control feeling. I am a free spirit. Was this the 80s? It was, no, it was the beginning of the 90s. Oh, right, okay. Because I was yeah. a designer for 20 years. I had a big gap in between my college and okay. my political... What's the design work? Just, just, I know, segueing again. At the end, I had my own small graphics company, and I worked for medium to big companies, mostly architects, civil engineers, transportation consultants, that kind of world. It was very nice world. And it's, it's quite nice to talk to someone that wasn't, uh, hasn't been like in law. Yeah, no, it wasn't. So, yeah, yes. <laughs> no connection with anything, knew nothing about politics, but felt this driving urge to do something more than graphics. Well, anyway. it led a pathway into politics, didn't it, then, if yeah. you got bored and fed up? Yeah, so yeah. I, um, I thought, OK, and I looked at all the parties. I, I found I was a liberal. I didn't know I was a liberal, but I am a liberal. I am so liberal. <laughs> Just... <laughs> I am so liberal right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I joined, and literally, the rest is history, because within two years, I was elected first Lib Dem council group on Haringey Council. So, yeah, that was another interesting point for me because I know that when you first ran... Well, I don't know for a fact. I'm just I'm guessing that Haringey, that's a pretty heavy Labour constituency. Pretty heavy. So when we were elected, three women, I have to say, first Lib Dem group, you have to also know that we weren't even... That was in 98, right? It was in 98, well done. Yeah. And we weren't... Not only did we not have any councillors, we weren't even second in any ward. We were third or fourth. We were a terrible third at general elections. How the hell did you do that? Well, it's where I lived, and I was a single mother at that yeah. by this, this time, and I couldn't go anywhere else. 
So I just started working where I was, and I was elected to the council very quickly, became leader of the opposition, barely knew what a council was, if I'm honest, because I didn't have anything to do with special services or any of the services other than my rubbish being collected. I knew about parliament, didn't come from that background at yeah. all. Anyway, I learned on the job, because Haringey Chamber, as you rightly say, is hugely Labour, so it's 57 Labour and three Lib Dems. It's the same as Lewisham, where I'm from, and it's... It's headachy. Yes. There's literally no accountability no, whatsoever. No, it is really sickening, and it's still sickening. You know, we got up to 27 councillors, but then we've gone down again since the coalition. And Labour get away with not listening, not caring. You know, I watched all the politicisation of the Greenfield fire. Greenfield uh, fire, yeah. And, and I saw it being used as a political football, and it was horrifying because I come from a Labour borough where tenants' voices are ignored totally. And I would say that's universal. That's one of the big problems is, you know, obviously if once an MP starts fighting for you, you might get listened to. And I always would go. tell people, yeah. if you're writing to the council, put CC Lim Featherstone MPs so they know there's someone watching over you just yeah. to give you that bit of power because they yeah. had no power. So two years after... I was looking at, you know, whether to go for Parliament, which seemed a very great long shot in Haringey. Um, I stood first in 97 as a paper candidate. Okay, yeah. And at the end of the night, that was New Labour's New Dawn. Tony Blair, who I cheered when he got elected for it was yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Labour were 26,000 ahead of me and there was a Conservative in between. So we, wow. you know... So it wasn't an obvious choice of a seat, but as a single parent, I couldn't go elsewhere. There was the opportunity to go for Islington South, which at that point was a very promising seat, go for the GLA, which was about to be formed in the year 2000. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So I decided I could go for the GLA, although that also seemed rather a long shot because it didn't exist, yeah. but I couldn't really be leader of the opposition on Herringay Council and try and build a parliamentary seat elsewhere. So I did go for the GLA and I got elected to the GLA when it started working with Ken Livingstone and yeah, I loved Ken before I got to know him. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, okay. You know, he was kind of, oh, Ken Livingstone, just one vote and it's mine. That was, his, that was his mantra. Yeah. But I learned a lot from him about communication. There's no one better at communicating with people, Hands not on. other politicians, yeah. not, you know, out of any camera to the audience beyond and I learned a lot from him and I learned not to be like him. Okay, yeah. <laughs> He's a little rat. Okay, yeah, I don't really know much about But Ken we worked together you. on the congestion charge, which was the biggest civil change. I was chair of transport in London for five yeah. years yeah. and on the Met Police Authority. They were really fantastic jobs, putting congestion charge into London. It was the biggest change to civil construction, really, in peacetime. Yeah. And it was a massive thing. And I remember the day it came in, everyone thought London would grow to a halt and all the media had people out on the yeah, perimeter where the congestion charge started yeah. waiting for the world to end and of course it didn't end and yeah. <laughs> it was very successful in no, those it's, days. it's so, absolutely fantastic. I mean yeah. that, that's, that's quite interesting. I didn't. I know that you, you worked on the GLA but I wasn't actually aware of, of the work you undertook oh, there. Oh yeah, loads so. of stuff. I mean that yeah. was the big profile one. I remember doing things like bus driver behaviour because I had so many complaints from people particularly old people, yeah. who were injured when buses judded to a halt or jerked. Oh, of course, and, you yeah. Know, 
and bus drivers, apologies to all the good dri bus drivers out there, but uh, wouldn't lower the bus for disabled access. There were all sorts of yeah. problems. And it was a wonderful campaigning platform, which I did and got changes in behavior. And phoning a police station when I was on the Met Police Authority. I mean, it's changed now. This would be 2000 onwards. And yeah. I phoned, or I got my team to phone every police front counter in London and see how many rings it took before they got an answer or an answer phone. And uh, it tended to take at least 100 rings or go to answer phone with no reply. And I dumped this report on the Met Police. We had board meetings every month, so I dumped it there in front of the commander. Obviously, everyone was furious with me, but they had to change, so it was great. So you had a lot of leverage in those positions. So your pathway... You won a council seat in an area which is, you know, 26 odd thousand majority of Labour, yeah. which is incredible. Did, it, did the party as a whole then look at you and go, ah, oh, no. Lynn Featherstone? Or did you have to grind this out yourself? Or was the pathway made no, a little no, no. easier? Did no, anyone? I didn't get any help from the party at all until just before I won my seat. Or yeah. maybe after I won my seat. Are we talking the MP? Or yeah, MP seat. Yeah. No, I mean, there was a little bit of excitement that in this yeah. Labour heartland, we'd managed to get some councillors. And then, you know, I did a lot of media when I was on the London Assembly. And so they, they enjoyed that. But no, there was no help at all, no. really. Is that, yeah, so... No, I was really sore about that. I remember going to Chris Renard when we had three councillors and saying that I wanted to be a target seat in 2001. Yeah. And he fell off his chair laughing. Oh, wow. Saying, okay. That's an interesting response. Saying, we don't make people with one ward um, uh, target seats. Get me six wards and I'll have another look at you. I, I negotiated him down to five. So but, you got up to five? But then we got five in that election. What were you doing to do that? I mean, like I said, I come from an area that's... We got 77% of the vote went to Labour in the general election, just yeah, gone. That kind of place. How, how the hell did you get What I that? found about a Labour area, which it was intensely Labour, um, and different sorts of Labour, council estate Labour and chattering classes Labour. Forgive me, Guardian readers. <laughs> <laughs> what made the difference was, well, firstly, working really hard. I used to go and knock on people's doors, say, have you got any problems and I would take their problems and deal with them. Even before I was a councillor, I was started getting things done and changed. But I also had two major campaigns that ran across several of the wards in the constituency. One was to get a new bus route for children. You couldn't get from Muswell Hill to Swiss Cottage and a lot of kids went down there. And Ken Livingston was against it because some of them went to private school. And I said, I don't care what school they go to, they just need to take public transport, not use their bloody cars. Anyway, that was a six-year campaign, but I delivered the bus route just before I won in 2005. And the other was reopening a police front counter, which local people really wanted. I opened it with volunteers. Yeah. And what that did is put me on the side of the people, and I was always there. And I remember in 97, when I knocked on doors and said, will you vote for me in the general election, people laughed when I said I was a Liberal Democrat. But five years later, when I knocked, they laughed less. Yeah. <laughs> I halved the majority. And in 2005, they gave me their vote, and I won. And then in 2010, they increased the majority. And I think they just voted 
out of self-defence. They thought she's never going to leave us in peace unless we make her in peace. And we'll just vote for her. So where do you think that? Not I use I say belligerence, but it wasn't really. It but was, it was it's a really determination. A, yeah, but it was also a natural belief that if you really believe in something, the people will come. Yeah. And in effect, that is what happened. And a lot of it was small things and personal help or local campaigns. And, you know, people often point to the Iraq war as being a sort of shift in the opinion of Liberal Democrats, but I halved the majority before the Iraq war. Yeah. So I think it was obviously easier to work against when you've got a Labour government and a Labour council and people want to express their discontent, which they did. So, you know, very hard when there's a Tory government to get that shift in the Labour-facing area. I hadn't even thought of any of that. I just, <laughs> just found myself where I did and got, got on with it. And when I go into schools and things, and I just say, listen, if you want to do stuff, just go and do it. If you believe in stuff, the people will come. They really don't care that deeply about politics or political parties if you're a good person. Now, there'll be national tides like the one that swept us out after the coalition that you can virtually do nothing against even if you walk on water quite frankly but beyond that you have every ability to befriend and take after and stand stand up for and fight for people in a way that is more direct than they used to particularly in these areas which have been safe labor seats or safe Tory seats when no one is listening to people anymore yeah. That's that's the real issue. Is they get so arrogant and they get so unable to to really treat people as human beings and take on some of the pain that people feel in their lives. Yeah. You know, my surgeries, I, I would be in tears. <laughs> my constituent would be in tears because these are stuff most people try and do do things, but they come up against so much hostility, bureaucracy, negligence life circumstances yeah. and often they're just passed on to someone else to deal with you know but no one actually ever grabs the issue and tries to work through it and that is an MP's job so yeah, you no, know. I, no I think some people lose sight of that especially when they've been like, in such a comfortable seat for so long well that's but, um, why safe seats are not good for humanity yeah. yeah well Proportional representation. Wow, let's bat that one around for another five hours. Well, um, I think it's really important. Our system is creaking under yeah. a system that doesn't work, where voices have no expression. We are leaving the European Union because there were voices who felt they had no representation and no one listened to them. Well, there you go. You know, it's so simple at one level, but yeah. you need all of us in the mix. And I was talking to some about 100 sixth formers yesterday, and I was trying to explain liberalism. Yeah. <laughs> five easy words um, but trying to say that look we've, we've reached this if you look around society now it is so divided so hateful so full of intolerance the inability to listen to a voice that doesn't agree with you without being horrible to yeah. them I mean so as a liberal I, I totally get that other people have other ideas and that all of us have a right to our own ideas and that the mix of that is a way to find a way forward that actually Everyone can agree on because the substance of a good idea holds sway rather than because I'm right and you're wrong. No, ab absolutely. I think that is a, a very interesting message for any campaigners out there to think about, you know, how to win in a local area and also, you know, how to progress as a human being, I suppose. Well, yeah, and I think that's really important. And politics has got to a dire state where people tell lies all the time. 
you know, who, who are we referencing here? Just all everybody. of all, all of the uh, all of the cabinet. So you know, everybody yeah. in every party, negative campaigning. Yeah. You know, exaggerated bar charts. I mean, the Tories are in big trouble. Mrs. May, who was my boss for three years at the Home Office, yeah. is in trouble. And she's quite a decent woman. Yeah. She's just clearly not a leader. The Tories are in trouble. Labour, cock a hoop at the moment. God knows why. That was the third election in the row they lost. <laughs> but I, I guess know, they yeah. defied expectations. Yeah. So they're in trouble. And, and hardly anyone has voted for us. So we're in trouble. And, you know, that's the honest situation because people don't know who to trust. They don't know how to judge. Yeah. The information givers are not sound. No, no, I agree, I, I agree completely because um, I think with Corbyn, the kids aren't really aware of just what the hell they're voting for. At least I don't think so. When I say the kids, I don't want to sound patronising, but what I, what I suppose what I mean there is what's actually happening with Brexit, guys, with, with the Labour Party. I don't, so. a, I don't think there's mass understanding that Labour, uh, Corbyn is pro-Brexit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, but I think, you know, to be fair, he's no Obama, he's not an orator, but he, he appears, and I think it is appears, rather than actually to play a different game or to not be playing a game. However, I don't think that's a true representation. There's this huge hunger for politics to be different. Yeah. And he, he looks like, although as I say, I don't think he is that different. Yeah. He looks like he's different. Yeah, um, no, I, I, you know. I, yeah, I get that. I get, I get that remedy. But that, it's not just you know. young people. It's also 35 to 45-year-olds. Bigger switch was amongst those to Labour. So, I know. I, I understand it. Maybe it's carried over across the pond from Bernie, Bernie Sanders. No, but, but Bernie's in a different category. Well, Bernie's no. A hero. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> right. Absolutely right. I mean, I did want to touch on your own personal view of how you thought the general election went for us. This one. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Pretty shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, our leader spent the first two weeks speaking about his sexuality rather than Brexit. So yeah. that was when we or had other people's sexuality or whatever. Yeah. The, yeah. Yes other people's sexuality, yeah. the momentum... I think he's pretty straight, right? I, I, have, I assume so. He has four children and a wife, but who yeah. knows? Um, but, you know, we had momentum on Brexit to start with, but it dissipated with that whole hoo-ha, and then we, we, we lost it. And also we have huge issues to challenging Liberal Democrats. So the voting system is one because it's polarised, and when you have right-wing and left-wing politics holding sway. Obviously in the middle we're squeezed. You have people voting Labour because they want to keep Tories out. Vote Tory to keep Labour out, yeah. depending what the, the seat tendency is. You have a polarised media who seems incapable of understanding more than punch and duty politics. And that's the situation we found ourselves in. And it didn't turn out to be an election about Brexit. It turned out to be about austerity and a whole range of things. You know, Liberal Democrat policies are fantastic, but we lost it on emotion and we couldn't get a look in. So, yeah, um, I mean, I know a candidate in Vauxhall, you're probably aware of, who's fighting Kate Hoey, George yes, Turner. I went over there one evening. Oh, you did? So you're familiar with George Turner then? Yes. So, yeah, obviously, he's had a chat with us about it and we were batting around what, what went wrong, what we did right. Yeah, what and what we right. Did but it's just interesting to hear from someone 
like yourself, who's in a cabinet for what? How many years? I was a minister. I wasn't in the cabinet. I was a minister yeah. for five years. Yeah, the whole okay. of the coalition. Yeah. It's my favourite bit of history. I'm the only Liberal Democrat woman in history to serve as a minister for five years. Wowzers. I know. I mean, we, yeah. we're not in government that often, so it wasn't... <laughs> True, but And last still. time we were, they didn't have women very much. So. <laughs> yeah, so from your perspective... Yeah. So, for example, we've had Paddy Ashdown, Charles Kennedy, Dick Clegg, Tim Farron... Without being too fine a point on it, do you think just Tim wasn't in that class and that's why it kind of, the, the wheels sort of fell off a bit for us? Or do you think that um, it was mitigating circumstances? I think Tim never transcended enough to grab people's imagination. I think with Tim, those people who know him and get to know him are pretty impressed with him. I and mean, he was very good at times. You know, the seven-way TV debate. Yeah. His opening and closing statements were genius. Were funny, and his yeah. line in the middle, like, I'm not running for Pope, I thought was hilarious. Yeah. But it wasn't enough. You know, yeah. that's not enough. He did a great favour to us, stepping up, when there were only eight of us left and there was only white yeah. men, middle-aged men, to choose from. Do you think that the party should have been more thorough then in not necessarily investigating his background, but being a little bit more, look, this could come up, this could really damage you know, the, the gay I sex think, stuff, abortion stuff. Or... I think it was examined and he was told in no uncertain terms about it when he wanted to run for leader and it came into the spotlight at that point and he mishandled his first interview with Cathy Newman but had it okay by the Monday, I think it was Adam Bolton. It was, whatever it was, he, yeah. he got his ducks in a row on it. Two years later, we go into the election and we go back to square one. And, you know, he was very conflicted. And I think genuinely conflicted between his evangelical and church beliefs and liberalism. And whilst he will say, I fight for other people's rights, it is virtually impossible to have the leader of the Liberal Democrats support a discriminatory position of religion and I you know I defend him because I think he is a true liberal I don't think he has a homophobic bone in his body and my anger is reserved for these great religions of the world who make people choose between belief and sexuality they're who we should be angry with yeah but Tim as leader of the liberal democrats allowed the media to run with it he had to nail it and if it was deeply held belief, which I totally respect, then he needed to talk to God about it and explain why he had to ditch that yeah. as a, a tenant, yeah. basically. <laughs> right, yeah. The harsh world politics. No, no, it's brutal. I mean, it, I think it scares the shit out of most people. I think that's why people don't get into it. What would have happened if you hadn't got involved? You know, people that do such great work that you have done, like FGM, etc., etc. You know, it's obviously based around the fact that you did so much work on same-sex marriage. And then David Laws writes this letter about being really upset about Tim Farron. It's understandable because. I think it's very hard to imagine what it feels like to be discriminated against because of your sexual preferences yeah. or gender identity or disability or any of them. This is an, It was an equal rights issue. Mm. And that's the key thing. And although Tim says you know, he fought for equal rights and other people's rights but held a personal belief, it's such a discriminatory belief 
that it's hard to get over. And we want everyone to feel okay about themselves, including religious Christians. It's just very difficult if they want to lead the Liberal Democrats. You know, there's an irreconcilable dilemma in that position. Or rather, it's not irreconcilable, because I know from being the originator and architect of same-sex marriage, I had abuse from many religions for what I was doing, and death threats, and trolled, and all of that. But along my journey, I met phenomenal people from the Christian religion, all parts of the Christian religion, who totally accepted gay sex was not a sin, and homosexuality was nothing to be judged. Do you want to talk about about, about that a bit? Because obviously people are going to be aware of your work, but where was the seed? planted, not necessarily planted, but when did it come to fruition? When did it really feel like you were going to take this and run with it, the um, same-sex marriage issue? About three seconds after I became a minister. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's not that. It's like I am an equal rights campaigner and all through my life I've hated making someone feel bad about who they are. So whether that's shaming someone because they're fat or, you know, it doesn't really matter what it is. Don't make people feel bad about who they are. It's just a basic belief. So I find myself Home Office Minister and I have responsibility for equalities. And I very clearly thought that I wanted to do something while I had the opportunity because I didn't know how many times in history we were going to have this chance. Apparently not very often at the moment. We're not going to have it again, are we? Never say never. Never say never. (laughs) So the Institute of Government was very kind. It set up an induction course for newbie Liberal Democrat ministers because none of us knew what the hell we were doing because we didn't have any predecessors. It's not like someone could say, this is what you do as a minister. They had Michael Heseltine and Andrew Adonis came to talk to us. Michael Heseltine basically said... You must ruthlessly prioritise what you want to do, because if you don't, you will spend from morning, noon and night running around, giving speeches, answering oral questions, doing correspondence, being a very busy minister, but you will never do anything you went into politics for. So my advice is prioritise ruthlessly. Andrew Donis said, trust your civil servants. He said, it's not like Yes Minister or the thick of it. Actually, I thought it was quite like Yes Minister or the thick of it. (laughs) But he said, if you don't, they will fill your diary. But if you direct them, they will go to the ends of the earth for you. And as I walked back from the Institute of Government to the Home Office, I decided on same-sex marriage because I've always felt a civil partnership is fantastic step forward by the Labour government, but I always thought it was a bit like apartheid. You know, there was one kind of union for gay people, another union for straight people. And I also recognise, as a Liberal, that some people believe in marriage and some people don't. And it really shouldn't be anything to do with their sexuality, so you should have civil partnerships for gay and straight couples and you should have marriage for gay and straight couples and there shouldn't be any division so I literally walked back to the home office called one of my private secretaries because for the first time I had staff everywhere you know (laughs) and I said okay look this isn't in the coalition agreement and it's not in any of the manifestos but I want to do it what do I have to do and he said Well, Minister, (laughs) he said, you need to write some wording that will take you from where you are today to legislation and you need to get the Home Secretary to approve it. And that's what happened. Wow, so Theresa May approved it. I mean, I've written a book called Equal Ever After, published by Bikeback, because I was so sick of David Cameron trying to take the credit for same-sex marriage. 
Well, it's huge. It's so huge. Let's just try and take it away. Yeah. Well, they always take all, all everything people liked in the coalition. Are liberal policies. They're the raising of the tax threshold, the triple lock, the pupil premium, preschool yeah. lunches, yeah, same-sex marriage. Yeah. Tories tried to take all of those. David Cameron now says, oh, I, I play, I'm very proud of the small part I played, but it's taken quite a lot to get him into his box on it. Yeah. But I was grateful for his support. It helps if the Prime Minister supports it against his party. I had to get Theresa to back it, and yeah. she didn't have a very good track record on LGBT issues. Uh, voting history is pretty poor, right? Until civil partnerships, which she voted for. But I was watching Question Time about a week after the election of 2010. And Dimbleby asked her why she voted against gay adoption. And on national television, she said, I was wrong. I really am sorry. I've thought about it. And and I realise now that the most important thing for a child is loving a loving environment, loving parents, and yeah. it really doesn't matter about their gender or their sexuality. And I was watching, and I went, woohoo, I think I'm in with a chance. <laughs> yeah. you know? So I had to get everyone on board. I worked across everyone, every party. I had a, a sort of mafia amongst the civil servants who helped me across government. <laughs> yeah. Gay mafia and ordinary mafia. Yeah. And amongst ministers as well, across different departments, because I needed everyone to help me to support it. And the charities, Stonewall were terrible to start with, but they, they changed tack. Yeah. That's a long story, you have to read the book. Um, okay. And I had talked to all the religions, because there were also religions that wanted to carry out ceremonies. And at first, I got straight civil partnerships and civil same-sex marriage past the cabinet. And both of those things didn't... We got religious marriage in the end and not straight civil partnerships. But they're very long stories, so yeah, as I no, say... Well, I've got to, we've got to read the book. Can you, you re- can you reference the book just one more time? Yes, it's called Equal Ever After, which yeah. is an excellent title. And sadly not thought of by me, but by my publisher, Biteback. Okay. Ian Dale published it. He, he believed in it and he wanted the story out there. He said, he, you know, he thought it was a bit unfair that I wasn't getting the credit for it. Yeah, and the Lib Dems no. weren't getting the credit. But what I love is I didn't know that it wasn't in the manifesto or any of the party policy. So no. that's really cool. No, I, I, I like to be that. fair, the Conservatives had an equalities document that talked about allowing people who had civil partnerships to call themselves married. No difference in ceremony. It's illegal if you have a civil partnership to call yourself married, but that's what... But it wasn't in any of the manifestos or anything. No, it's madness. It's just just funny to think that we're now at that position where we're not necessarily taking it for granted. But was it in Scotland? Not so long ago, there was the first... There was a a marriage for the first time in a church in Scotland just a few weeks ago. And um, today in the chamber, one of our Lib Dem peers came up to me uh, and said he was going to mention me in the chamber because he got married to his partner this weekend. Oh, really? So, you know. Oh, fabulous. And it's one of the, it's my happy place in politics because, you know, you go in, you slog your guts out, particularly if you're a Lib Dem. <laughs> and, you know, seven days a week for 17 years, yeah. 12 to 18 hours a day in the weekend. Eh? Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, eh? <laughs> well, I've been rested for two years in the Lords now. Yeah. But... Uh, you know, that was a very good thing to have done. Yeah. It's a very liberal thing. And it happened because we were in coalition and I was made Home Office. And, of course, yeah. and everywhere I go and talk, you know, I often speak on whatever subject, there'll always be a young man or a young woman comes up to me afterwards and says, thank you for what you did because yeah. I now 
you made me feel like an equal citizen. Yeah. And you know, quite often they burst into tears, I burst into tears, we hug because it's yeah. very emotional. You know, you change mm. people's lives and it, in a good way. You know? It's hard to get emotive when I'm asking questions in this environment. Yeah, but, but it but I, I you know, I'll probably go home and think of a thousand more questions I could have asked you about this. But it is <laughs> it's just fundamental, isn't it? Discrimination, prejudice, it's just it's something that obviously it bring, can bring you into politics, and then if you're put in a ministerial position like you were, to actually just affect comes change. Up. You know, you, you know, I've, I've always come from the sort of campaigning, fighting side of politics, yeah. only in a good way. I mean, I'm, you know, very liberal, so I, as I say, I accept lots of different ideas, and I don't always think I'm right, or even if I do think I'm a right, I do accept that other people think they're right too. <laughs> <laughs> but it just was so natural. I didn't even hesitate, didn't even think about it. It was obvious that yeah. this bit of work needed doing. And quite honestly, ignorance is bliss. I didn't know you weren't meant to do things that weren't in the coalition agreement or manifestos. It did seem obvious that civil partnerships were not equality. And yeah. if I was equality's minister, I was going to do a bit of work that made it equal. So, yeah. so when I look back now, I think, what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's fantastic, isn't it? But that's yeah. so many of my achievements in my life have been like that, you know, you very small ones. But you, yeah, you yeah. just go, you know, I suppose maybe the podcast is a little bit like that, I suppose. Well, Although, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. Listen, you're doing this and it's yeah. fulfilling something that you want to do, yeah. to find out, to explore, to get messages out there to yeah, understand I, the world really know? i just want to plant really beautiful plants and, and create herbaceous borders well i think that probably but, is the you know, one of the most rewarding things you can do oh my it must God. fill your soul not that i believe yeah. in souls but if i did believe in souls <laughs> it would fill it my soulmate. oh my god um what was it like to work under Nick Clegg, not work under, work alongside. What, what was Nick Clegg like as a, as a leader? Was he like? Oh, I thought he was fantastic. Band, a band of brothers, all you guys together. Yeah, there. pretty much. Yeah. You know, I, I, I chaired Chris Hume's campaign for the leadership okay, twice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank God he didn't win, because Nick is a. I mean, they're both really good politicians, but Nick is kind of a really, probably one of the finest people and politicians I've met in my life. Yeah. And I have met a lot of politicians now. He sees clearly ahead. He argues liberally. I, you know, I think we made mistakes in coalition, but it was a bloody difficult thing to do. Yeah. And I always found that he went for the right thing. Basics, in their essence, was an internationalist, fairness, yeah. equality. You know, all of the things that really matter if you're liberal, yeah. they oozed out of him. And that was where he was. Absolutely. I mean, having interviewed him once and had a little chat with him before, and it was really nice, he was very pleasant. He's very pleasant. Very nice guy. I've seen him talk a bunch of times, and he always just completely cuts through. I don't know how he does it, but he cuts through wonderfully. I think Coalition kind of masked some of his greatness because... It's very difficult when you're a small third party in coalition to get out there to show what you're really doing. Everything is swamped by the media and the Tories. Yeah. Particularly when you're deputy prime minister. When you're that, deputy right? prime minister and, and yeah. you know, tarnished with the student fees, which I think is one of the most unfairest things in the whole wide world. But you my know, God, that's around our neck, right? Of course it's around yeah. our neck. But why, why is it around our neck? Of course there was a trust issue and so on and so forth. But so many political parties have broken so many promises and done so many terrible things. Why is it that the Liberal Democrats can't escape from this one thing? It's because we're not allowed to. 
by Labour mainly, to be honest. Yeah. The NUS march, the NUS pledge, and the fact that more poor students were going to college, and none of the facts made any difference. And it was a hard lesson, hung round Nick Clegg's neck, yeah. why he was targeted in Sheffield Hallam, why he lost his seat tragically. But it's so interesting because I don't know if you watched his resignation speech. Oh, that's why I joined the party. So I was going to like say, I watched it and wept because there you saw yeah. the real flame of liberalism and what it means and why it's so important to hang on, even though we have more dark days than anyone could ever imagine. Yeah. But to hold out for that freedom, for that freedom of individuality to think, to be you know and to share yeah. and, and a world that that matters um, no, of course. and it shone through in that speech and that's why you and others saw it yeah and you want to bottle it and you say why can't we why can't we market that better more of the time because you know if you could do that on a daily basis we'd be the government on our own <laughs> yeah well, that's more than a million dollar question isn't it it's, it is it's like... very hard Great to yeah, speaking about Nick like that, you know, I think he would really, you know, I think he'd really appreciate that, especially I was, I was talking to Greg Mulholland not so long ago, uh, well, today actually, uh, he, he sent me a really profoundly sad message about what his life is like now, 12 years after being an MP, and it's, it's kind of all faded away now, and it's, it's gone, and, and it's not just like losing a job, you've been judged massively. Seeing Nick in his speech at Sheffield Hallam just in the past general election was... Oh my God! I mean, they're obviously by loads. the sword, died by the sword. Right. Okay. But it's still heartbreaking because you know you think that guy, like he said, he really did some great things in coalition. And Polish he has some magic around him as well. Yeah. Well, I'm sure he will go on and do other great things. I mean, I yeah. haven't given up on him in politics. I tried to drag him into the Lords, but he wasn't having it. No, he wants to. He wants to reform, doesn't he? I just think it's not his platform. It's not his bag. I hope he'll maybe one day go back into politics or find a different way forward because he has so much yeah. energy and so much far-sightedness and clear-sightedness about... He's unbelievable. You know, yeah. Like, literally, yeah, how literally. he just can turn turn on to, like, Mr. Pro yeah. in, a, in a flash. Like, it's fantastic. Yeah. It took me about two years to re-ingratiate myself with him after chairing Chris Hume's campaign. Oh, but, really? Well, that's politics. You know, yeah. it's very much who you support. But no, we ended up really, really close to each other. So, like internal politics like that, could, does that really matter in terms of the same party? You fight for the party, well, for the leader, and then. Well, there's a story behind it. It's not quite like that because okay. way back when we knifed Charles Kennedy because he was an alcoholic. I mean, I loved, I campaigned for Charles to be leader, but I was heartbroken when I got to Parliament and found out what was actually going on. Yeah. And then it was this kind of accepted wisdom that Ming Campbell would step into the leadership position. Now, I thought Ming was an amazing foreign affairs spokesperson during the Iraq war, but I didn't think he should be our leader. Yeah. So I rang. I thought there's only two people who could do it, Chris and Nick. And I rang both of them and yeah. said, please run against Ming. Nick said he was going to support Ming and he wouldn't run. And Chris Hewn said, if you can get seven people to nominate me, 
I'll do it. Yeah. I did. Yeah. And he ran and he lost against Ming. <laughs> so, yeah. And a year later, Ming stepped down because he leadership wasn't for him. He didn't enjoy it. It, it was horrible. It's brutal, isn't it? It I is brutal. Yeah. And, you know, and they called him old and, you know, all sorts of disrespectful things. And it wasn't that. But leadership is very different from being brilliant in your particular genre. Yeah. Anyway, so then both Nick and Chris wanted to go for it. Yeah. And they both rang me. <laughs> and I felt I couldn't desert Chris because he'd done well, you, my bidding. <laughs> yeah, you, you, fired, you started the fire in his He'd belly, done my so, bidding. Yeah. So that, that was how that happened. Yeah. But, I, you know, I'm very glad Nick won because I think he was, in the end, a far better yeah. choice. He didn't hold it against you for doing that, though, surely? No, but it takes no. a little while yeah, before okay. you're brought in from the cold. Yeah. It's just a little bit of punishment, you know. Yeah, it's just the way politics <laughs> But we is. ended up really, really close. Yeah. Really well, close. Well, clearly, you achieved so much together. Whilst we're talking about leaders, uh, final question, perhaps. Yeah. Who's going to lead the party? Yeah, good question. Listen, it's really difficult. I personally would like to see the pool widened. I would like us not to just choose from within the party. Is anyone else going to step up? Because it's just Vince at the moment. There will be. I'm I'm pretty sure Ed will go for it. You know, we have a lot of wonderful people in the party. There's, I don't know, there's... Willie Rennie up in Scotland, there's Kirsty Kirsty Williams in Wales, Caroline Pigeon at the London Assembly. I'm not, you know, necessarily putting their names in the ring. I just feel to be continually asked to fish in this pool. Uh, and I think both Ed and Vince are fantastic. But I, um, in a sense, I would like it to be opened up so that, that could be, they could contest against people outside yeah. and give the party a broader choice so, of leader. But apparently it's not possible. So I, it has to be an MP? Yes. Which I think is absolute. I mean, this is this is from my politically naive. Literally, you can hear the naivety spewing out. Has, of me, well, that's I, in our constitution. So yeah, I, exactly. I texted our president and said, "Couldn't we widen this out so that we have MPs and others who want to contest across the party?" Yeah. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon's not in Westminster. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's not. It's uh, Carol, the Greens have co-leaders. You know, they, why why should we follow a model just because it's been? But Sal Brinton says that the constitution can't be changed in time because you have to take, and I do respect democratic process, mostly, and um, uh, you have to take a motion to conference and then to get it changed, and we, have a, we will have a new leader in place by conference. Anyway, yeah. so it is what it is, but my uh, preference would yeah. be to see Ed and Vince contest against others in the party to yeah. give a broader chance. Half of our party has joined since the referendum, yeah. 50, 50 odd thousand people, you know, and I think the offering should be broader. I think, as I say, I think Ed and Vince are marvellous, yeah. but I, I want something. Well, I'm really glad that you feel that way because that's exactly when I, I, put, a, I put a podcast out talking about co-leading and having a co-leader rather like the Greens and, and yeah, widening that pool because I think we're doing ourselves a disservice here. Yeah. And... However, we are where we are, as right, they say. Right, OK, we are where we are, sure. We are where we are, that's the Constitution. Do you want to chair my leadership challenge? <laughs> Does that, is that right, chair? I've always yeah. been on the losing side of leadership challenges. OK, well, that's I, don't chair, I went on to chair Norman Lamb's campaign against Tim Farron. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, wow. So I have said to both the contenders that yeah. they would should wish me not to be on their side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they both have incredible skills and very 
wonderful for the party, different skills to each other, yeah. and a few things that we could do without. So I wish them both well. Yeah. I have not made up my mind in any degree. I'm going to wait to the hustings because I, I want to see how they perform. Yeah. I want to see how the party feels about them. I don't yeah. know how the wider party feels about them. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't want to make my decision just based on my narrow prejudices. Well, I just thought it was going to be Joe Swinson, but... You know, I thought it was nailed on, and then she said, well, I'm going to be dead. Do she doesn't want to do it. She doesn't want to, yeah. No. I don't blame her, really. I mean, it's, it's going to be brutal. <laughs> <laughs> I do blame her. Yeah. Well, but, but the brutality of it. She and I history, because 20 years ago, she stopped. We fought over the, you know, we had terrible representation of well, women. When she was, like, 18. I think she was 20 or 22. Jesus, wow. And she, so she brought all these girls onto the stage, and they were against any mechanism to help us have... Um, all women shortlist. You could have all women shortlist and all male shortlist, but you know, yeah. in equal numbers because we were doing so badly. And she fought it and she won. Yeah. And so for 20 years we didn't have good women's representation. Although to be fair to Jo, yeah. she spent the next 20 years working to get women represented as a yeah. fierce campaigner and a feminist to boot. So yeah, yeah. yes, I'm very disappointed that when the moment opportunity knocked, she didn't want to do it. I, you know, it's her call. You can't. You can't blame her, it you know. Just, so it's me, just, yeah. I just, you know, and also the moment doesn't always come again. You know, this may have been her moment. Who knows what will happen in years to come. Yeah. She would have been the best choice, I think, because she represents yeah. difference and we need difference. I know, we need a, we need a female leader. I'm not, I don't know why, I'm, I just feel that that would be such a natural move for this party. Yeah, and it's because we make everyone feel better. <laughs> it's true, it's true. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny because Theresa May, who I worked with for three years in the home office. The bloody difficult woman. Yeah, but really, you know, I had great respect That's for her. That's my Ken Clark impression, by the way. Oh, was it? Sorry, didn't recognise it. So, okay. so sorry. Yeah. She likes that phrase. She yeah, of course loves she that phrase. Does. She bathes <laughs> in it. She it showers in it every day, yeah. We disagreed, I would say, on 85% of everything, as you would hope, because she's very Tory and I'm very liberal. Yeah. But she backed me on same-sex marriage, and if I hadn't had her backing, I might not have got it out of the Home Office, you know, because yeah. you have to do all sorts of procedural things, like get it past Cabinet. Yeah. And it has to be your Secretary of State who puts it to Cabinet, so she did it on my behalf, and yeah. so on and so forth. And I liked the way she worked. She was on top of detail, very good at taking a brief, understanding a brief, making a decision based on evidence, listening to a whole range of voices and taking her own view on it. Yeah. Didn't find her particularly tribal in that sense. She was uber-conservative and, in my view, completely unhinged on civil liberties. And <laughs> Really? <laughs> well, you know, she just couldn't understand why prisoners should ever have a vote, even if they were in for six months. Because I always think part of the democratic process is civilising. Yeah. So we just came from different places. On the Snoopers Charter, you know, I think the Tory party would chip and pin you if they could, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so and we just came from. Well. But on most things, I found her reasonable. She was fantastic on violence against women. That's true, yeah. yeah. And, and those kind yeah. of issues. Yeah. So I thought the Tory party was very lucky when she caught the ball, because otherwise it would be Gove or Boris or Andrea Ledson. So I thought they are so lucky Theresa is there. Yeah. And yet, it's all turned to ashes all turned to ashes, yeah. just wrong advice, listening to the wrong voices, making the wrong judgment. I was very surprised that she got it wrong. So you sound sympathetic towards her here, so that's... Well, I, uh, I think she's a decent person. Yeah. I actually think she is a very decent person. And just whether it was too big a leap, 
or just wrong voices in her ear about calling the election when she'd made it clear she wouldn't and, call and the an tone, election. the tone towards the Brussels as well. The on tone day. towards Brussels. I was giving her a little bit of the benefit of doubt, saying, well, you know, if I was going into a negotiation, I want to say, well, I can walk away from this. Yeah. I want the hardest, hardest, hardest of Brexits. <laughs> Um, as a negotiating position, all the time thinking, I'm going to be in the single market and the customs union and the CJ can carry on. And of course, I love free movement. So, yeah, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, right, yeah. So, so I don't know, but it's all turned to ashes. And no. she is in a terrible position. And obviously she is, as her dear friend George Osborne described her, a dead woman A dead woman walking, walking. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that, that's a fair point. It's just Although now... public opinion can change very quickly. But it's opened us up to a... A whole raft of douchebags that could uh, step in, so that's pretty terrifying. Yeah, that is really terrifying. Yeah. But you know, I'm equally terrified by Corbyn, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, I'm, I'm quite distressed because I think he's he's a front man and he's being used by the harder strings yeah. that live behind him, and that some of the things that would actually come to the fore should they ever get to government yeah. would be dreadful. Yeah. would be absolutely dreadful for the things that matter to me, like you know, freedom and... You know, but doesn't like what really terrifies me about the Labour Party is it's not actually the Labour Party, it's momentum. Yeah, it is momentum. And that's what really scares the shit out of me, specifically but because you have... runs the Labour Party now. Yeah. It's changed. And I feel desperately sorry for the sort of moderates, the Stella Creases and the Chikaramunas, yeah, and all the very 50, decent... 50 sensible-headed, And the Blairites. Yeah. You know, people forget Blair got them into power. Yeah. If I had what you know, obviously the Iraq war was a, if I said stumbling block, but rather a point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously a terrible call on that. Yeah. But the problem I really had was Blair was sticking to the Tory spending plans the first two years when they had the fabulous economy, fabulous majority. They could have yeah. literally changed the world and they didn't do it and they lost that opportunity. Yeah. But that bringing together of sides put them in power for three elections in a row, which they had never managed before. And now they're vilified, and I find that intemperant and intolerant, yeah. you know. But I think that's the, the, what sticks, isn't it? Like, that's the stuff that sticks. We talk about tuition fees at the Iraq yeah. war. What's, what the hell is going to stick on the Tories that's going to prevent them from coming back into government for 15, 20 years? It seems to me that they just seem to just be able to Brexit. walk up. Maybe. <laughs> but I think our country will be so screwed, and then if, if they go out, then Corbyn's going to come in. But well, that's the problem with seesaw politics. Yeah. It's never any good. You know, we'll change everything that went before us. Actually, if you talk more broadly in the country, most people are roughly in the middle. They don't particularly want extreme right or extreme left, but systems force them into that game. Yeah. And the media are beyond the pale yeah. and guilty. And social media is, one level, it's the freest and best, wonderfulest thing that ever happened. It's another. It certainly perpetuates a lot of myths very quickly. Hell yeah. No, no, it does, I think. It, it, it helps foster, you know, conspiracy theories and heavily. It, well, exactly, you know, yeah. So, That's the right word, isn't it, really? So individual judgment and relying on your own sensibilities seems to be quite a rare personal attribute. Well, yeah, because you, you talked earlier about your instinct, not knowing that you're a liberal, but then figuring it out. Yeah. That's like a personal instinct, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and know? it's very deep-rooted. Yeah. And most people want those who can't, through no fault of their own in life, to be looked after and sheltered and treated really decently. Yeah. And those who can need to pay more tax and, you know, all of that. But you can't say that everything must go to the poor 
you know, you can't unbalance society so that no one has a stake in it. We know from things like the spirit level and the Scandinavian countries that the more you can close the gap, the happier people are. So we have to find a way to move towards the closing of a gap. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what I see as the only way forward. But yeah. where the Messiah is who will take us there, we don't have a Macron or a Justin, you know. Oh, um, my God, Justin Trudeau. That is my absolute... We are all in love with Justin Trudeau. But there's something about the reasonableness of Canadians and the desire to be seen as good people. Yeah, reasonable is pretty much the word, isn't it, for the <laughs> and, Canadians? And yeah. for Justin to come from third position as a Liberal yeah. and storm it... Where, where are you, Justin? <laughs> you know, I think Mick was Justin. And it just didn't pan out because of our stupid country. And yeah. when I say stupid country, I'm talking about the media, the political system, yeah. the voting system, you know, the kind of things that hold us in this terrible internecine war where we have to hate someone to make ourselves feel good. No, absolutely. No, no, you're absolutely right. In fact, I have a client that I believe that the only way she can be happy is by hating. That's an... Why? <laughs> yeah, well, you I know. think she's... A... Yeah, anyway. Anyway. I don't know. Anyway. to that. She's a horrible cow. So do you make um, her flowers die quicker as a Oh, I don't have control over her flowers, but if I did... <laughs> oh, God. She's, I don't think she likes my dog either. Oh. But anyway... You tell a lot where the people fight. Yeah. I really want to get an interview with Justin Trudeau. I think it's my ultimate end game is an interview with Justin Trudeau. Just to look into his eyes. <laughs> Wait, that's just, a very nice eye. Yeah, but, just maybe have him hold like me for five it, minutes. To be honest... I've seen Macron and Trudeau, if it didn't have to be a good-looking male. It's like in the Kennedy um, kind of mould. It's sort of, why do you have to be good-looking and why do you have to be male and why do you have to be middle, you know, that yeah. sort of... I don't know. Well, I don't, I don't. I mean, maybe maybe if we if we get uh, Vince Cable as a leader and he takes us to leader of the opposition, it won't even matter. That's yeah. a nice little fantasy if, for us. If that could only happen. <laughs> yeah. Okay, should we, should we wrap it up? Yeah. Okay, do you want to say goodbye to our listeners? Yes, listeners. I hope you enjoyed that. I want to say I am an optimist. I think it kind of goes with being a Liberal Democrat. And I still believe that most of the people in the world are good and want good things for everyone. And that's what keeps me going, because I don't actually believe the sort of nastiness that's out there. When I go door knocking, whatever people vote, most of them are decent people who just want to look after their families and make their way home. Yeah, that's a beautiful message to end on. All right then, ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. And there you go. I forgot to tell you, uh, we were sat in a really crowded uh, sort of cafe restaurant situation. Cafe restaurant? What did it be? What, in the House of Lords? I don't think so. I, I don't know what, what you call a cafe restaurant environment in the House of Lords. Something really, really posh. I can't think of it. But anyway, coming up in the future, we have got a rolling panel coming your way. So we had a really good chat with George Turner, or at least I did with a podcast and I hope you enjoyed it it was a long one but at the end of it I deduced that this guy belongs here regularly so George is going to be returning on a regular basis along with myself and Bobby Dean and probably we're trying to sort of figure out Elaine obviously Elaine Bagshaw as well we're going to try and figure out one more female role so it'll be once a week after I'm married okay it's blooming stressful at the moment in my life so expect more in-depth analysis from a panel kind of like how we used to do it before general elections took hold and up before i went to thailand 
So yeah, those of you who have been listening for a while will understand I've been to Thailand and then come back and then there was a general election, so it's been a bit mental. Also, I want you to send some questions in for Tim Farron because I've got an interview lined up for him. That's between the 15th and 20th of July, so you've got a bit of time to get your questions in to Tim. Where can you, where can you, uh, yeah, the, the, the Limehouse podcast at gmail.com. That's where you can send your questions. And you'll have to forgive me that I'm speaking so quickly, but I want to try and get this in under six minutes just because I just don't want to bore the crap out of you. And then also we've got Paddy Ashdown lined up in and around the same sort of time frame. So if again you want to get some questions to Paddy, the Limehouse podcast at gmail.com. And Anything you want. I mean, I'm talking like, what kind of shoes do you like to wear on a Tuesday, Paddy? Or Tim Farron, you know, what kind of shoes do you like to wear on a Wednesday, Tim? That's the kind of mental capacity I have right now. I'm quite, quite tired. It's been a long week. It's a long week. Even though it's been bloody cold outside. What's all that about? On that note, I'll I'll leave you to it. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Lynn. You know, if you want to expand on it, please do. I'm on Twitter. We're on Twitter. Limehouse Pod. Always on Facebook. Trying to sort of get my head around that bit more. Trying to do a bit more there for you guys. And look forward to the panel. That'll probably pop up in the next 10 days to two weeks, just after I'm married. And if you want to send me, hey, well done for getting married. Hope you're happy. Uh, Messages, please do. They'll warmly receive. Goodbye.